0: If you can imagine with me for a moment, a pastor who is a very gifted communicator, uh, a very winsome and agreeable person, uh, a man who is full of charisma, easy to listen to, easy to want to follow. And in in addition to that, he's an effective administrator, able to gather people towards accomplishing objectives. He has a picturesque family and is himself a handsome, picturesque man. Is he a good pastor? And I hope your gut response is, I haven't told you enough. Because in reality, he could be every single one of those things, and even more, but still be nothing. Because I haven't told you whether he actually has faith in Christ. I haven't told you whether he actually believes that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. And I haven't told you whether he has the conviction to stand firm in the faith and protect the flock. At the end of the day, this, this person could have all these gifts and be a false teacher. We have to be careful. I think it's very easy for churches, and oftentimes we see churches do this, it's very easy to say, because this person is going to attract a lot of people and expose them more to the gospel, it must be okay for us to start playing fast and loose with what God's word says is the standard for what a pastor should be. And indeed, that spills out into ministry. Instead of going with the grain of what God says we are to focus on in our corporate gathering and worship, it's very easy to say, well, what will attract a crowd? How can we pursue what seems like a good end but then choose means that are not in accordance with God's word? And what we have to understand is God is not a pragmatist. He does not allow the ends to justify the means. No, he has called his people to live in accordance with his word and to entrust the results to him, to let him provide the increase. It's very easy for man to look on the externals But God is very clear that he looks on the heart to see who is devoted to him, who is following his word and worshiping him accordingly. And that is the sort of people we must be, a people of the word devoted to the Lord our God. The main point we're going to consider in, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 through 20 is rather simple. God's king and consequently God's people must live according to the word. God's king and God's people must live according to the word. We've been discussing how Moses has emphasized in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, the central, pivotal, foundational place that the word of God has. God made everything by speaking it into existence, by his word. God has given the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 5, these 10 words, these 10 commandments, And these words are meant to lead the people in reflecting the glory of God as they imitate him. Because we've argued and discussed how the ten words themselves seem to be reflective of the words God proclaimed to Moses in Exodus 34 when he passed before him on Mount Sinai. God uses his words to reveal his glory. God uses his words to bring about life. And in this section, we've been discussing how Deuteronomy 16, 18 through the end of chapter 18 is meant to mirror the command to honor your father and mother. And what we've been discussing is that these authority figures that are in these different spheres of life, whether it be the family, the church, or in the government, all those leaders are called by God to lead people in understanding the word and living according to the word for their good. Their leadership in these spheres is ultimately under God's authority. And so what, what we've been discussing is that as we did, looked at different nuances, the whole section is moving us towards ultimately a leader, a prophet, priest, and king who is going to embody the word of God, who's going to fulfill the word of God, and who is going to minister the word of God to God's people. So that those who are, as we were discussing from Isaiah 49, who, those who are in darkness might experience by the power of the word of God, new creational life. So, Pastor Jeff was talking about this, and it bears touching on again here before we even really dive into verse 18. As he was discussing, when you look at the Old Testament and in the New Testament, oftentimes the way things are structured is to move you towards the middle of what's in front of you. And we are essentially in the middle of the book of Deuteronomy, which means we're at a big pivotal point in the book of Deuteronomy. And in addition to that, this passage 18 through 20 of chapter 17 is kind of like the middle of this entire section. So we're at the middle of the middle, as it were. So this is going to be a deep passage. There are sometimes profoundly deep passages, things that are harder to understand is how Peter talks about that in 2 Peter. And this is just one of those passages. So there, there is going to be a level of complexity to this. But what's simple about this is because it's oriented towards the king, we're seeing that this is a passage that's clearly about Jesus. There's a simplicity to that. Jesus talks in John 5 about how Moses wrote and spoke of him ultimately. This is one of those passages that shows very clearly without a doubt that Jesus was correct. In that assertion. Moses did indeed write about Jesus. So the simple part is that all this is oriented towards Jesus. Just kinda like a a, a feast is obviously a delighting in the food. But kind of similar fashion of what we just experienced. I'm gonna try to orient you to where things are in this feast line and in this buffet and try to give sampling of all these things. But the considerations of what's in this passage are gonna take time. They're gonna take eternity. And we'll have to keep going. There's a lot here. So I'm going to say a lot of things, and yet I'm not going to say a lot of things at the same time. So, again, the thing that's at the center, the thing that simplifies the passage is that this is all about our king. It's all about Christ. So to discuss some of the method about how we do hermeneutics, we we have to be um, sensitive to context when we're studying scripture. We don't get to choose what the meaning is. The meaning is most clearly understood when you see how the words are used with the other words that are around them. So we use context to determine what the meaning is. So we want to look at this passage. We want to understand how it fits with where we are in Deuteronomy 17 and 18. We want to consider how it fits with what's come before it in the Pentateuch and how it's going to flow into the rest of the Old Testament. And then we want to understand how it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because what we're trying to do as we do hermeneutics is ultimately not to just study truths or morals but study God. All of scripture is one book that is revealing the glory of God in Christ by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So this is a this is a complex thing to do, but it is oriented towards God and in that way it's very personal. And that leads us into what the goal is. We want to do good hermeneutics as a method but with a goal ultimately of doxology. Sometimes when we have these passages that are overwhelming, I think God has put them there to make us feel overwhelmed. That's actually, I think, proper response to different passages in Scripture. I think this is certainly one of them. And the benefit of being overwhelmed is that it leaves us in awe of the glory of the triune God. Amen. And when we are in awe of God, it allows us to live moment by moment, situation by situation, in light of the glory of God. So that whatever, whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we can do also the glory of God more faithfully. So... As we go into deep water, know that that's the grace of God. So some helping points. Notes are, are a good thing to do. Taking notes is always a helpful thing. Um, listening to the sermon twice might be helpful. I'll record it and uh, make it available. And I don't say that for you all. I'm planning to listen to the sermon twice. This, this is just such a profoundly deep passage. And I, I think like we are talking about for Wednesday night, to be able to come back and talk about this again is going to prove to be really helpful. So consider this the beginning of discussion and beginning of consideration. So, let's begin with Urami 17, verse 18. It says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So, when we talk about this dynamic, he's sitting on the throne of his kingdom. This king presumably has been chosen by God. He has been installed as the king sitting on the throne. And in sitting on the throne, his goal is not to wait for people to come serve him. He is to start acting as one who is serving God. He is to write a copy of this law, God's word. And what that helps emphasize for this king who is sitting on his throne is that he's not the real king in this situation. God is the king. He is to serve the real king. You see this dynamic where the Levitical priests are also reminding him that he is not the ultimate authority because they have to approve the copy of the law that he is supposed to write. He's not even his own teacher in this student situation. He's writing out this copy of the Bible, and it has to be reviewed by another person. All this serves to remind him that he is under God's kingship ultimately. Even the dynamic of him writing out the law, I think, conveys a point That copy of the law is coming from his body, by his own physical actions. And I think that shows that the king is meant to embody the word of God to the people. He is meant to be a king like the Lord his God. He is to lead the people in that same sort of manner, that they would, too, embody the word of God, that they would act in accordance with God's word, and similarly serve the Lord their God as their ultimate king. And this is for the people's ultimate blessing and benefit. For the king to use his leadership to orient the people with him towards the Lord their God. This dynamic of sitting on his throne of his kingdom and then writing a copy of the law, this seems to be somewhat similar to the idea of when Moses ascends, just like this king's ascending to his throne, Moses ascends onto Sinai and what he brings down to the people is a copy of God's word in the tablets. This king is making himself a copy of the commands for his own pursuit of faithful leadership of the people. So the question then becomes, what does this look like in New Testament terms? So let's go over to Acts chapter 2. And I think Acts chapter 2 shows us the fullness Of what we are discussing here in Deuteronomy 17. It says in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This is Peter speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Luke is showing that Jesus, and if you take into account that Acts is essentially the second volume to the Gospel of Luke, Luke has shown. that Jesus came and has accomplished a new exodus to liberate God's people from their bondage to sin by himself being their Passover lamb, offered in sacrifice. And through Christ's sacrifice as our Passover lamb, he has risen and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father as the true son of David, the true Davidic king. And the dominion that Christ has is not just over Jerusalem. It is over all of earth all of heaven, and all of the universe. He is the true king that was awaited from Psalm 110. And in accordance with being the king from Psalm 110, he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God, the Father, is in heaven, and Jesus approaches him as the high priest of a new and better covenant. He has ascended as an intercessor before God in a way that's even better than Moses did when he went up on Sinai. So Luke has been showing all these things, and then Peter is proclaiming to all these people that this king is reigning now. He is sitting on the throne of his kingdom. So what does it look like then for this king reigning to write his copy of the law? Well, we had a... My son actually posed this question to me this week. Uh, We were sitting at breakfast, and he had... broken off a couple pieces of bacon that were shaped kind of like a tablet round at the top and kind of rectangular at the bottom and he's like daddy it's the old covenant and the new covenant <laughs> and there's so much to address I did not address the irony of the old covenant being written on a piece of pork though that was certainly <laughs> worth talking about but what I did talk about is like well that, that is kind of like the old covenant but where did God write the new covenant on our hearts Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.3, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. When Christ writes his copy of the law, it is not on a piece of paper. It is on the hearts of his very people. And it's written by the very Spirit of God. So that what was talked about in Deuteronomy 10, where the people need their hearts circumcised, he is... Simultaneously fulfilling both the circumcision of the heart and his writing of the copy of the law by giving his people the Spirit of God and writing his law on them that they might be able to love the Lord their God and love their neighbor as theirself. Now, certainly, this isn't the most literal fulfillment, but there are instances in Scripture where we see something fulfilled that's not fulfilled in the most literal way. But you'd be hard pressed to argue that this isn't fully fulfilled. It might not be literal, but this is a greater fulfillment than just writing on paper a copy of the Bible. Uh, G.K. Beale gives an example of this dynamic that we see uh, at different points in Scripture. If you can imagine a dad at the end of the 1800s promising to give his son a horse and buggy, and then he seeks to fulfill that promise at the beginning of the 1900s, and instead of giving him a horse and buggy, he gives him a car. Well, did he fulfill his promise? Yes. He gave him a good mode of transportation that actually exceeds what would have been a literal fulfillment. So God does this at different points. He gives a greater fulfillment and a greater blessing, and we are living testimony to that because we have the law written on our hearts by the Spirit that is in us. And indeed, by that Spirit, through our great prophet, priest, and king, we become little prophets, priests, and kings. For us to be a book, I think, is reflected in what's going on in the book of Acts. The Spirit's poured out, The law is written on the hearts of God's people. And then at Pentecost, they go about fulfilling a prophetic ministry that's centered on proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we don't necessarily, at this point in redemptive history, have the ability to say, I have a new message from God, and thus saith the Lord. But what we do have is the fullness of scriptures so that we can say, thus saith the Lord. And in that sense, we have a very prophetic ministry as the Church of Christ. This is in fullness or in fulfillment of what Moses had anticipated in Numbers 11, that all the people of God would have the Spirit and be able to prophesy what was promised in Joel 2. And so to boil all this down is, Moses going up to Sinai and bringing down the tablets of the law to the people, that was a huge, significant moment in redemptive history. And yet, it pales in comparison with what Christ has done by sending to our Heavenly Father and giving us the holy spirit that we so that we become the copy of the law with the law written on our hearts if you'll flip back over to Deuteronomy 17 with me it talks about how this copy of the law is to be approved by the Levitical priests. So the first part of the discussion, I think, is to discuss who are the Levitical priests in this scenario. And I think what's a helpful note to understand how this is fulfilled is to consider the fact that the high priesthood has taken a major shift in the New Covenant. Peter quoted from Psalm 110 when he's expositing and telling the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. And what Psalm 110 tells us, as we were discussing, is that the high priest we have in the New Covenant is a high priest according to order of Melchizedek. That's what is shown to be the fulfillment of this in, in the book of Hebrews. So we have a, a significant shift in the high priesthood, and so what we see as the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood takes a shift as well. And, and Isaiah 66, I think, tells us what this looks like. Isaiah 66 and verse 20, I'll just read it for you. You can mark it down if you want and look at it later. Um, but this is what Isaiah 66 says. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations... As an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots, and in litters, and on mules and in dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I think this is talking about nations coming into Jerusalem, coming in as part of the people of God now, and then it says, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood is found in every member of this New Covenant community that has the Spirit in them. We see in uh, similar language in Isaiah 56, and then we see this move forward into the New Testament, where in 1 Peter 2 and Revelation 1, the Church of Christ, Jew and Gentile together, is in full called the Kingdom of Priests. So this is, you know, a harder doctrine to have to navigate. This is my interpretation of it. Um, so you obviously, follow your conscience here. Uh, certainly, I would not say that this is, you know, us being a Levitical priest as a kingdom of priests in Christ doesn't mean that we're the same as Levitical priests. Certainly, we're not going to be offering sacrifices in the same way. But I do think what we do in offering spiritual worship to God through Christ is a very full fulfillment of what the Levitical priests were anticipating in and of themselves. And what this should drive us to, regardless of how we interpret this, is it should drive us towards profound humility. Because of our priesthood that we have in Christ, we need to understand that we went from being those who needed an intercessor to being those who, by the faithful ministry of our high priest, have become intercessors. Those who have a ministry of reconciliation for those who are lost in this world. And that humble recognition of how god has blessed us should cause us to praise him and to be thankful for all that he's given us how how can sinners like us be made priests and i think part of the answer is found in second samuel 7 we'll come back to talk about this passage more in second samuel 7 david was wanting to build a house for god a temple for god and what god tells david is that his son david's son is going to build the house for God. He is going to build the temple. When Christ comes, when the word comes incarnate in tabernacles among us, we see in John 2 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and he offers up that temple to be destroyed and then raises it in three days, we are given the spirit as we've discussed from Acts 2 and through that spirit, we are made, like we were discussing in, Ephes- discussing in Ephesians 2 in Sunday school here recently, we become the temple of the living God. We become that temple, and through being part of that temple, we are naturally those priests as well, by God's grace to us. And we show, and so we have this question of how do we see this approval that's talked about here, given if we are the little priests, what does that approval look like? Well, I don't think we necessarily have to give approval. God has given his approval by raising Christ from the dead. Mm. Jesus died as one who was condemned as unrighteous, and he's raised and vindicated as being the righteous one. Though certainly we who confess him agree that he is the Lord, we agree that he is the righteous one, and we put our faith in him accordingly. And even when we come into church fellowship, Jeff Brown was talking about this yesterday, there is a degree to which we approve the written work of Christ on the hearts of one another by joining in fellowship with one another in in this body and fellowship. So the king is to sit on his throne. He is to write for himself a copy of the law. Why does he need another copy of what is being written here in the book of Deuteronomy? Why would there be another copy of Deuteronomy and and the whole of the Pentateuch needed? Well, Because the king is going to need to succeed where the people have failed. Verse 19 lays this out. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So where the king goes, this word is to go with him. It's to be with him. And not only that, he is supposed to keep reading. it. He's to read it all the days of his life. This is not a read it once, put it on your shelf, and let that be that type of situation. This is you take it with you everywhere because you're never going to be done reading it. You're to be stewing in the word of God. He is to continue in the word of God all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes in doing them. And as you go in the verse 20, it's to talk about how his heart may not be lifted above, above his brothers. What is being laid out, therefore, in my estimation, is that he is learning to fear the Lord his God, to love the Lord his God, and to love his neighbors as himself. He is learning to walk out the first and second commandments that are foundational to God's, or foundationally flowing from God's character and foundationally laid out in the ten words. He is doing the fullness of the law through his consideration of the scriptures. And so this is instructive for us. It is through a knowledge of the scriptures that seeps down and permeates our hearts by God's work in us that we then flow out in loving God and loving others. And so I think as well, the phrasing here, learning to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. If you go back to Deuteronomy 5, uh, towards the end of the chapter, you start in verse 32 and go forward and into chapter 6. These are words that are being picked up again here in Deuteronomy 17 for the foundational commandments of keeping this whole covenant. And that's what I think the idea is here. The king has to keep the whole covenant. Because the people can't. We talked about how last week, God's going to stay plainly at the end. The people won't. So what, what I want us to consider here, with verse 19 especially, and it's tied very inextricably to verse 20, but hear me out. I, I discussed earlier, we're at the center of the book of Deuteronomy in this section of essentially chapters 17 and 18. This is the central passage. And then if you look at how it starts by talking about the king's kingdom and ends, and it's going to come back to talking about his kingdom what we're looking at in verse 19 is really the center of the center of the center. And, and why I'm making this, I'm belaboring this, is just to say Deuteronomy is making it very centralized and focused that it is the king who is the one who will fulfill the covenant. God knows that people cannot, but he will provide the one who will. So this has to foundationally guide how we interpret everything in the Pentateuch, especially the book of Deuteronomy. This book is not ultimately about us and our morality and our righteousness. No, this is meant to humble us in our recognition of sin and drive us towards the king God's going to provide to give us salvation. So what we see is that the king is called to be what Israel cannot be. And in that way, the king is the federal representative of Israel. He is the true Israel in and of himself. Um, I was talking about 2 Samuel 7 a moment ago. And 2 Samuel 7 David asked for that house, or asked to build that house for God, and God says he's going to build a house for David. And that house that God's building for David is focused on David's sons. It is one of David's sons who is going to be the king who will not only build the temple, but it's one of those sons who's going to ultimately be the king who reigns in finality forever. So there's a good biblical pun here. That word that's used for house can be used in both senses. The house could be the literal structure for the temple. It can also be your family. My house is primarily my wife and my boys. That's my house. But it also can be used to describe the place where we dwell. And so God uses that to emphasize it. And why that's important is Jesus comes to fulfill both senses of house. He is true temple. He is true son of David and the final king. He's all of it together. Jesus comes as that true son to God that Israel failed to be when they were called as God's son in Exodus 4. And so as that true son, he has to come and fulfill these commandments. He has to fulfill the righteousness that Israel could not fulfill in and of themselves. And what's important to consider here is what does it mean to fulfill the commandments? What does it mean to fulfill the law? Because if Jesus simply just obeys righteously, he has established a righteousness that can only stay with himself. If he just does the commands and that's all. Mm-hmm. Then the people of God will be a party of one. No, for, for the people to be part of this kingdom and receive the righteousness of their king, he has to redeem them and take their sins and guilt upon himself mm-hmm. and pay for it in his blood. Mm-hmm. Part of how we're seeing that, that movement, these threads, is through how this commission to the king is picked up in Joshua 1 in Joshua's commission. The king is told that the copy of the law shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. The law was not to depart from Joshua. He was to meditate on it day and night. This commission is picked up again in Joshua 1. And what's helpful here is to consider who Joshua was called to be. Joshua's called to be a servant of the Lord. He's supposed to pick up the job that Moses, the original servant of the Lord, has started. Moses had led the people out of their bondage in Egypt, but because of his sin, he failed to bring them all the way home. Joshua's picking up that job to take the people who are led out of their bondage and actually bring them all the way home. Jesus comes as the full and true servant of the Lord. Jesus' name is the Greek version of Joshua. And it's not just fitting because Jesus is a better Moses. It's fitting because Jesus is literally Yahweh saving. And that's what the name Joshua means. Yahweh is salvation. Indeed, Jesus is Yahweh's salvation. Mm. He is the prophet, priest, and king that Deuteronomy is anticipating. And as God the Son, He is indeed the true Son to God that Israel failed to be and that the Son of David was anticipated to be. And we see the humility that's necessary for Him to be the King who provides this redemption. When you see Him, we were just discussing this yesterday in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is the Word. The word incarnate, and yet in the temple, he is humbly learning the word. He is in there engaging and discussing. He is growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He is indeed a humble and gracious Savior. And he fulfills not just the commands, but everything in the law, because that's what it means. To fulfill the law is not just the commands, it is the types, it is the shadows, it is the very judgments that are laid out here. Mm the judgments that we deserve. Mm -hmm. And we see these threads of needing a good king, needing a servant of the Lord who can accomplish both a redemption out of bondage to sin, but also to bring the people home into the presence of God. We see all these threads converging in the book of Isaiah. We've been reading... Uh, different sections of Isaiah this morning. And if you start earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 9, it talks about, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That passage is talking about a king who's going to reign on the throne of David, who's going to fulfill the righteousness and justice that the people couldn't. In Isaiah chapter 11, from the stump of Jesse, there's going to be shoot that comes from David, a new king. And he's going to have the spirit upon him. He's going to fulfill what it means to fear the Lord, like we're seeing here. And that sets the table for what we read from Isaiah 49. Did you notice that in Isaiah 49, as Alec was reading, the the servant is called Israel. He said, you are Israel. And yet that servant who is called Israel has to restore Israel. So how does that work? Well, it's because the king is the federal head and representative of the people. And what he does counts for his people. So he restores Israel to himself. This is is why I think Jesus says, I am the true vine in John 15. Israel is called the vine in Isaiah 5 and in Psalm 80 and in different passages. Jesus comes to fulfill what Israel could not be. He is the true Israel as their king. And the glorious reality for us who are Gentiles, Isaiah 49 49, says, it's too light a thing to just restore the people of Israel. He's going to be a light to the nations. And indeed, that's us. We have been brought in through this good king whose salvation is so great, it permeates all peoples of the earth. He is a light to the nations because in Isaiah 53, this servant embraces the death for the people's sins that God had called him to. The suffering servant pro- provides the redemption through his blood, the atonement the people needed, so that sin is dealt with once and for all through our king who dies on the cross in our stead. John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The king has come. He has been the son that the people could not be. He's the true and better Moses who provides a full redemption from our bondage to sin. And he is a better Joshua who brings us all, all the way home to be with God forever as his adopted children. Indeed, the command in verse 20 says that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. The king's preeminence His reigning on the throne is not to be a reason for him to be detached from his people. It is not a reason for him to despise his people. And as we are reading from Philippians 2, we see the humility and grace of our Savior. Just the very idea of God the Son taking on flesh, coming incarnate as a man, living a life of humility and service and obedience to the Father, seeking to bless the people of God, coming not to be served, but to serve, and obeying the Father all the way to the cross. We see this sort of humility that is demanded of the King fully exemplified throughout the entire life of Christ. Not just at the cross, but the entire life of Christ. Pastor Jack was... Uh, Helpfully pointing that out yesterday. We should think of Christ's humility as not just being the cross, but simply seeing that that humility starts with our nation and culminates at the cross. Mm -hmm. And yet, as we consider what Christ has accomplished at the cross, the cross is not just a display of his humility. It says that the king, his heart, may not be lifted up above his brothers. And yet, in Isaiah 52, 13, when we were reading this morning, he said, Behold... My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high. is the same word there for being lifted up. He's not to lift himself up, but yet he is going to be high. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So he's not to lift himself up, but God is going to exalt him. He's going to make him high. And when the, the so that, that word that's repeated here, when it's translated from the Hebrew to the Greek in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament that they had, John picks up that same word, In his gospel, to talk about how the Son of Man is lifted up at the cross. He is indeed lifted up at the cross, and that hour in which he's lifted up at the cross is indeed an hour of glory, not just humility. Christ, in that hour of glory on the cross, is the warrior conquering the last enemy. You 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 go to different historical museums or, or see different historical books and you see these epic pictures of warriors in battle. That's what the cross is. It looks gruesome. It looks like defeat. This is victory. And I think the gospels actually lay out a pictorial representation of that victory. If you consider the literal shape of the cross, it is shaped like a sword. And what is the place Jesus is crucified shaped like? A skull. In pictorial terms from the Gospels, this is a sword going into the skull while the last enemy is defeated, while the decisive victory is won. Death will be defeated in the end. Please excuse that. Satan and sin and death are being defeated at the cross. The sword is being plunged into the skull. Genesis 3.15 is being accomplished. The crushing of the head is happening through the son of David. The cross is a display of humility, is a display of victory. And John 15 says greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Genesis 22, Isaac, the initial seed of Abraham, he is spared while a ram is offered as a substitute. When the true seed of Abraham, Jesus, the better Isaac comes, he is that substitute. And he is that substitute so the rest of us can become seed of Abraham. At the cross, we see the most profound display in human history of God's love and justice, the most, dis- the most profound display of God's victory over evil. The cross is all of these things bound together in our Savior. As if that were not enough, we are called by our faith in Christ, and John, 1 John 5 lays this out, by our faith in Christ, we walk in a similar pattern of victory through faith in him. A faith that leads to victory that is manifested in a love for God by keeping his commandments. A love for our neighbor by keeping God's commandments That is only worked in us through the power of Christ. And we continue that victory in the similar vein of overcoming by love and obedience to the Lord our God. And yet we need to consider that this is not the finality of our calling. It's not just to love and suffer with no glory at the end aside from that. There's more and more glory. It says, his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That is picking up phrasing from earlier in deuteronomy that clarifies what this sort of continuing long means what does it mean that he would continue long does that mean he's going to have an 80 year life or does it seem mean something more and i think deuteronomy 440 gives us a clarity It says therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which i command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land that the lord your god is giving you for all time forever What that means is this path that Jesus is called to follow in that includes his heel being struck, includes him becoming the full atoning sacrifice in his death. It is a path that doesn't end in death. It merely leads through death to full resurrection, new creational life. It's promise for him. And Jesus, understanding that promise, does not turn to the right hand or to the left but follows the Father faithfully. And because of this, he is raised. God keeps his promises. Jesus is raised with an indestructible life, is how Hebrews describes it. He is vindicated as the righteous one. And as we were discussing in Philippians 2 and in Acts 2, he is at the right hand of the Father as the risen and reigning Lord over all creation. When we consider our salvation or the sharing of the gospel, what we are discussing is not people choosing to make Jesus their Lord. We need to be clear on this point. You don't make Jesus your Lord. He is the Lord, whether you recognize it or not. When we are proclaiming the gospel, when we are recounting and testifying to God's gracious work in our lives, we are calling upon people and recognizing the fact that God, by his grace, Gave us the faith, as we were discussing earlier, to confess that Jesus is Lord. God has given us that faith to believe that God raised him from the dead. And so we confess Jesus is Lord with joy now. But as we read from Philippians 2, in the end, every knee will bow. and every tongue, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But for those who reject the gospel now, that will come with agony and judgment in the end. We all need to recognize that Jesus is Lord now. And as the reigning Lord over the universe, he does not negotiate. He does not make compromises or treaties. No, we need to indeed hate our life in this world that we might gain eternal life. And how can we know that God keeps such promises to give us eternal life in the end? His word tells us. The Bible has said so. God has said so. And we can trust his word. Additionally, our Savior already has risen. He has already ascended. And as the reigning king, he has given us the Holy Spirit. And through that Holy Spirit, the eternal life that Christ had is already given to us. Eternal life has begun already in everyone who believes in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit is a down payment and guarantee that what has begun in us is going to be fulfilled in us as we are resurrected in like fashion to our Savior. Indeed, the Word took on flesh and became like us, that we might become like Him even in new creational life, in physical resurrection through the power of the gospel. I've saved the hardest part of this passage, I think, for last. It says, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is talking about the king's children. We've been discussing, I hope, hopefully with a level of clarity, that Jesus is God the Son. And yet, this passage is indicating that there is a children that he has. And so I want to be very clear and careful on this point. Because this is a... a, a a topic that doesn't come up often in scripture, but it is there, and so it does need to be discussed, and yet it needs to be discussed with a level of sensitivity to our most foundational Christian doctrine, which is the doctrine of the Trinity. So if you'll bear with me for a moment, we as Christians believe that there is one God, there's one divine being, one divine substance, and that one God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of those persons is equal in power, and equal and glory. there is a uh, mutual indwelling that we see in the Gospel of John that is part and parcel of the Trinity. The Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. We also know that the Son is the express image of the Father, so that as you see Christ, you are seeing the Father. And yet with all of that, the three persons remain distinct. The son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. So, given what we believe about the Trinity being laid out here, how do we interpret the meaning of this statement, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel? Because this is the children of the king. And I think Isaiah 53.10, which we read earlier, gives some clarity here. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Similar phrasing there. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So what I think is being laid out here is that Jesus has a fatherly role in the life of the believer in that he is the one who gives us eternal life through his death on the cross. I think we see that laid out as well in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see at the beginning, Jesus rises through the clouds to the right hand of the Father. He ascends, and he's laid out in that passage, I think, as the fulfillment of the Son of Man. That's anticipated in Daniel 7. And what that means is Jesus is the true and better Adam. He has a fatherly role in the sense that he is the last Adam, the head over the humanity that is born again for a new creation in him. You see, as you go forward in the book of Acts, through the bride of Christ, the church, the word of God is fruitful and multiplies, just like Adam was called to be fruitful and to multiply. And through that fruitful multiplication of the word that is proclaimed by the bride, we become children to God through that. So, to summarize, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ, and that includes God's promises to Abraham, both when it pertains, or when it pertains to the land promises and as it pertains to the genealogy promises. And as important as family is, and it's very important, physical family is very important. What Jesus shows us in passages like Matthew 12, which we were discussing yesterday morning, to be Jesus' brother or sister or mother is purely defined in terms of believing in him. Being part of God's family takes a precedence even over the importance of physical family. Jesus images the Father by having a fatherly role in the life of the believer, by giving us eternal life. And yet, even in that, that gracious dynamic of God fulfilling all of his promises in Christ, we remain children ultimately of God the Father. You see this in John's Gospel. When Jesus rises, he says, I am going to your Father and my Father. So we are ultimately children of God the Father with all of this. So, I hope that was clear. If it wasn't, I am very glad to help in any further way that I can. Okay. Suffice it to say, this king, he, he is our king, he is our brother, and in a sense, he is like a father to us as well. He is everything to us. And we've touched on so many different doctrinal points. Um, if you want to flip over with me to Hebrews 2, there's so many things that we've talked about But I think Hebrews 2 gives a very nice, concise summary of the glory of Christ in an obviously far better way than I could. So I think summarizing would be done best from the scriptures themselves. (laughs) Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he... To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's a lot of clarity to consider that everything we're hoping for and waiting for and searching and considering is found in Christ. He is the prophet, priest, and king that we need. He is the true and better Adam. He is a glorious Savior and a faithful, loving brother. In considering some application, I think the first and foremost thing we need to consider is that we must, like our king, be a people of the word. There's a superabundance of glory to consider from the scriptures that we will not exhaust, ever. And as I mentioned in the beginning, and as we've been seeing in Deuteronomy, and as I mentioned from John 5, The pursuit of studying the scriptures is not a cold, impersonal pursuit. It is a relational pursuit of knowing the glory of God in Christ by faith. So indeed, we need to believe in Christ. We need to serve our Lord and give him the praise that he is due. And just as we see in Christ loving others, we need to spill out in our doxology into the service of our church and the service of other peoples, proclaiming this gospel to the ends of the earth. And what I hope you saw there with Hebrews 2, what I'm suggesting in pursuing the scriptures is not just something that's good to do, it's what we're designed to do. It's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, our existence is designed to find his fullness in knowing God. And we need the scriptures to know God rightly. So for us as individuals and as churches, for us as a church that is very committed to sound doctrine, to Calvinistic doctrine even, we have to be careful in this regard. Having some strong theology, having some strong application in our lives, does not make us actually strong. It does not make us actually mature. It does not make us actually faithful. We are called to be semper reformanda. We are called to be always reforming. And I'd like to add to that that we're supposed to be reforming in every area. Not always reforming in some areas, but always reforming in every area. We need to apply all of Christ to all of life. So how do we know that we are doing this faithfully? And I think it starts with that basic question of, are we students of the word? If we have put our faith in Christ and we say that we're disciples of Christ, disciples are learners. Are we seeking to grow in our knowledge of our God? A love of God manifests in a desire to grow in the knowledge of God. We have to be careful that we are not overly indulgent of ourselves. And I think in this day and age, it's very easy to let entertainment and technology eat away at the time that we would otherwise use for pursuing a knowledge of God in the scriptures and pursuing God in prayer. As we... Live our lives. We need to live our lives in a way that shows that the scriptures are sufficient. If we have areas of our life where we think God hasn't spoken, we are wrong. God has spoken to every area of life. If we try to introduce analytical tools because we think God's word is sufficient, we are really making excuses for deviation from the word of God. We need to understand that God's word is authoritative. We need to consider every word he has spoken and live in light of every word that he has spoken. And we are doing this because we are living, not for, and we should be, we should be living for God's purposes, not our own. We should be praying your kingdom come, not secretly praying my kingdom come. And we can do this with a confidence. A confidence that the greatest blessing and exaltation we can experience is only to be found under the king, in service to him. He is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. And even as we follow him, hating our life in this world, casting aside various things, we can be sure that our end is going to correspond to his. Resurrection life, eternal glory in the presence of God. And let us be true to that hope. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, our only response is to put our trust in your son. And I pray, Father, that we would be overwhelmed with your glory and kindness and grace that's been revealed in Christ. That we would tell of your name to one another in this congregation, to one, enough, to one another as brothers, and that we would fulfill the ministry of prophetic evangelism that you've called us to. That we would speak this good news to this lost and dying world, knowing that by your power, any individual can be saved as we are living testimony of that. So give us grace to be thankful for all that you've accomplished for us, to be confident as we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior today. Cause our attention to be fixated upon him, that our assurance might be strong, and that our worship might be faithful.